Father, we pray that as we come to your word again today, Lord, that you would give us um, clarity of mind and humility of heart. May we hear what your word is saying. I pray, Lord, that I would be able to accurately communicate that, Lord. I pray that in hearing and understanding, Lord, we might receive. We know well that understanding something and receiving something is not the same thing. Lord, convict us where we've been double-minded. Bring us to repentance. Change our lives again today, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we are pressing on through James 4. Um, Let's get a bit of context as we come back in again today, because context is going to be absolutely crucial. We kind of did the first three verses last week, and we led into verse 4 to see how different that looks perhaps from how we originally understood it when we see it in context um, and we'll press on through the rest of this section today and there's a couple of tricky bits so we'll, we'll go through those slowly but let's make sure we have our context James throughout his book has been addressing this whole issue of this, this very, for want of a better word, bipolar um, approach to life. You're either living God's way or you're living man's way. You either have heavenly wisdom or you have earthly wisdom. And he's, he's shown us that in a multitude of different ways. And right from the beginning, you know, when he's talking about considering it a joy when we endure trials, he, he's, he's trying to find ways to prompt us and to show us and to say, are you really living wholeheartedly for God? Is your whole mindset set on Christ and on living for him rather than on yourself? And all of this came to a crescendo at the end of chapter 3 where he said, Who is wise and understanding among you? And I think by the time we got to that point in the book, we realized that the answer at best was not many of us. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And there, there was this, this central theme of this book that... Wisdom isn't how you think in the context of James, in the context of the Bible. Wisdom isn't purely how you think. Wisdom is how you live. And what James is saying here is, if you think you're wise, then show me. Show your wisdom in the way that you live. This is coming on from what he said in chapter 2 about being justified by works. Of course, we are saved, we are justified, we are declared righteous on the basis of our faith and, and not by anything that we do but once we have been saved it is our works that justify or prove or show the salvation that has been received by faith and that's very central to James thinking he's talking about Christian behavior and he's saying if you're wise let's see it and works show the meekness that comes in this wisdom in this way of living 
And he contrasted that in verse 14. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. There are so many things that we, we associate with Christian living today. But nothing, absolutely nothing can take a higher priority than humility. If we are people who are still seeking after ourselves, our own comfort, our own well-being, our own desires, our own will, then we are not living in wisdom. We have the wisdom, James would say, that is from the earth, unspiritual and demonic. And then he goes on at the end of that section to emphasize peace. That there will be a peace that comes from this kind of wisdom. There is a peace within our own hearts where this, this struggle, this fight that we have. Where we're constantly saying, do you know what, I want to live for Jesus. Oh yeah, but I don't want to have to go through that. You know, I, I, I want to be sold out for Jesus, oh, but I also want to be able to do this. I don't want to be any compromise in my life, but I don't want to, I don't want to let go of that. I still have this desire. And there's this, this, this fight within us. And when we, when we have heavenly wisdom, we become a person of peace. And then as James says at the end of chapter 3, there's this opportunity to sow that peace amongst others. Too many churches are full of people who are double-minded, waging war within themselves. And so when they come to church, they simply spread that warfare to other people. That's what James dealt with at the beginning of chapter 4. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? Last time we dealt with this whole section, I know for many of you it was shocking and hopefully life-changing. That The reason that you fight is not that other person... Because that's what we, we tend to think, isn't it? If there's a fight going on, if there's a quarrel, well, why is there a quarrel? Because they did this or they did that. And the reality is, is that quarrels, be they in marriage, be they in friendships, be they in church, that quarrels have a single source, which is that you want something and you don't have it. That's it. That is the source of every fight that's ever existed. You want something and you don't have it. That's it. You say, but it's perfectly reasonable for me want to want to be treated well. For me not to be spoken to that way. For me, for me not to have to endure this. For me to want something. And James addresses all of this. He says that you do not have because you do not ask. You say, oh great, let me pray then. Lord, I pray that you'd take away this problem person. And, he says, and then he says, oh yeah, but when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend on your own passions. In other words, when you pray and say, hey, I've got this situation of conflict, God, and I really don't want this person treating me this way, please deal with them, then the reason James says you're not receiving an answer to your prayer is because what you're praying for is in line with earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom, which is, God, please take away my problems and make my life more comfortable, because quite frankly, at the end of the day, this is all about me. Of course, we wouldn't use those terms, but ultimately, that's what our heart is saying. And as we said last time, We are people who claim to be Christians. We are little Christs. We follow him. We associate with him. And this is the Christ who came to his own and his own did not receive him. 
This is Christ who came in the power of the Spirit and was accused of being possessed by Beelzebub. This is the Christ who was rejected by his own family. This is the Christ who went through an arrest because of the betrayal, the kiss of a friend. This is the Christ who had a kangaroo trial where all of the law that he had so perfectly kept was brushed aside to make an innocent man declared guilty. This is the Christ who did not raise a finger against them, though he could have called down the hosts of heaven. This is the Christ who walked through Gethsemane en route to the cross, where he was so scourged that he could not carry it himself. This is the Christ who upon the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is the Christ who said, it is finished. Do you want to follow him? Because if you do, saying in 90% of your prayers, please take away this problem, please stop this person being horrible to me, please fix this, please do that, please make my life more comfortable, then you are the stereotypical double-minded, double-souled person that James speaks of. And as we left it last time, coming back into verse 4, that is the context of this well-known and misappropriated verse. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That is not a verse that is saying... Hey, you watch too much Netflix, you're worldly. That's not a verse saying, hey, you're on social media, you're worldly. That's not a verse saying, you do things that I'm not comfortable doing, therefore you're worldly. Which is how it is used in most sermons where this verse is used. It is a verse that is saying, when you're praying for a better life, you are in deep danger of being an adulteress. It's a feminine term. So I guess I have to say to you guys, just like I've been saying all the way through James, when it says, hey, brothers, it means brothers and sisters. I just want you to let you guys know that you can be an adulteress too. It's in the feminine form because it's making a reference back to the Old Testament and Israel, where Israel was seen as the wife of Jehovah and the, constant, uh, the constantly unfaithful wife. Book of Hosea. Little reference there. So... When we're told that we are an adulterous, and it is feminine, though it's translated in most versions as more neutral, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity towards God? Friendship with the world in this context is not saying what you're watching on TV, the music you're listening to, and who you're hanging out with. Though things could be said about those things, this is not the text. What it's saying is that friendship with the world is the attitude in your heart that says, I need to get what I want, and now I'm in conflict because I'm not getting what I want. That's friendship with the world in context. Do not miss that, or you misunderstand the verse. And so he says... Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is, this is just 
classic James. This is what he's like. There, 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 is, there, is, there is black and white, there is up and down, there is right and wrong, there is, there is in and out, there's no in-between. I don't mean the burgers. There's no in-between with James. What he is saying here is this, you, you either are a friend of the world or you're a friend of God. You're either an enemy of the world or you're an enemy with God. And that is not going to be seen by the music that you listen to. It's not going to be seen by the bumper sticker on your car. It's going to be seen by whether you are a person of peace that is created by your humility, whereby you say, though I am being treated badly, I'm not going to allow this to be a point of conflict where I defend my honor, my rights, my whatever. Because I'm going to humble myself like Christ humbled himself. I'm going to like him, entrust myself to the Father. And I'm going to take all the grief that the world and the people around me will give to me. Because it's not about me. And this is an opportunity that God has sovereignly allowed in my life for me to mature and to become more Christ-like. To embrace the, the humility and the meekness of wisdom and to put aside my pride and therefore I'll consider this trial joy. That's what being a friend of God looks like. And rejection of that is what it looks like to be an enemy of God. That's clear. And it needs to be said. And it needs to be said again and again. And it needs to be said loudly and more loudly. Why? Because we live in a time where Christianity has become a culture. Even evangelical Bible-believing Christianity has become a culture. We have our own books, we have our own TV shows, we have our own clothing ranges, you know, we have our own, you know, we follow the, the, the right social media accounts, and, and we're, we're part of the culture of Christianity. And you can be part of the culture of Christianity and go to a really good Bible-teaching church and get fed the word every day, and you can nonetheless be an enemy of God, because in your own heart you are a person of conflict, because you do not embrace humility and you're constantly fighting to be treated the right way to be thought of the right way to, for things in life to go the way that you want and it is exhausting and it is heartbreaking for you before we even consider how that impacts people around you and this is the heart of Christianity and the, the sad, sad truth is that you can go to otherwise great churches for 10, 20 years and never have this addressed. Humility is the heart of our faith. And it is the greatest expression and outworking of true heavenly wisdom. So, do you want to be a friend of the world still? Or do you want to be a friend of God? Verse um, 5. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Folks, this is a hard verse. 
And when I say hard, I don't mean hard in the sense of, boy, was verse 4 hard. Boom, felt that in my heart. I mean hard in the sense of, what on earth is going on here hard, okay? So I'm going to try and unpack this for you slowly and explain to you the various possibilities and then explain to you why I understand it the way I understand it. So take a a deep breath and we're going to try and do this slowly and carefully because this isn't easy, okay? Broadly speaking, there are... Two main possibilities here, broadly. There's other variations as well. And the different Bible versions translate it in various different ways. And you get to see just quite how interpretive many Bible versions are as they basically work out what it means and tells you what they think it means rather than just telling you what the text says. We have... We have, well, before I, before I even come, sorry, pardon me, before I even come to the, the various options, let me just show you the problem here. Do you not suppose, uh, I'm reading from the ESV here, okay? I'm longing for the day when the full legacy standard Bible's out and I can shift to that. But for now, I'm in the ESV. And I have in front of me, do you not suppose that it's to no purpose that the scripture says, then I have a comma, then I have an open quotes, which, by the way, don't exist in the original Greek. There's no punctuation. No spaces, for that matter, in the original. Um, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. End quote. Question up. There is no scripture that says that. People have searched and they've, they've, they've tried to, well, maybe he's referring to this and maybe that. And Psalm 83, 3 and Psalm 40, verse 2 have been suggested. But ultimately, at the end of the day, let's be frank, there's no verse in the Old Testament or elsewhere that says what has been placed in quotes here in the ESV. That's problem number one. Now, the issue of interpretation beyond that problem is this. Is he referring here to the Holy Spirit? Now, when we come across the word spirit, there's all sorts of things we have to, we have to deal with and address. The word spirit, both in its Hebrew form, uh, ruach, and in the, in the, in the, in the Greek with panuma, uh, you've got the same issue, which is that the word spirit can also mean breath and can also mean wind. And the same word means all three, and we see that word play often. We see it in John chapter three. You know, the, the spirit, you know, wherever the wind blows and blah, blah, blah. But, but, we need to understand that even if it doesn't mean wind, and even if it doesn't mean breath, and even if it means spirit, you still then got the issue of does it mean the human spirit, or does it mean God's spirit? So there's all sorts of interpretive issues every time you have the word spirit in the text. Now, the traditional way in which it's understood, <coughs> and the way in which the ESV seems to be translating it, is this, that God is saying that uh, or rather, that the, the, this supposed scripture is saying, he, God, yearns jealously. So God, there is a jealousy that God has over the spirit that he has placed within us, being the Holy Spirit. In other words, I've given you my Holy Spirit. Therefore, Paul, 1 Corinthians, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, and you should be holy, Right? That's the context of Paul talking about us being, our bodies being a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's not how much food you eat or how much coffee you drink and how little exercise you get, as is quoted most of the time. It's actually to do with with, um, issues of sexual purity in that context. But there's Paul talking about our bodies being a temple of the Holy Spirit. And 
And it, it fits very well here in the sense that if God gives us his Holy Spirit, we are now a temple, therefore there is a requirement on how we live. And then if you understand that that's what James is saying, you then have the whole, the whole idea that you have God indwelling you, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, so how can you be an enemy of God? How can you be a double-souled person? And so it fits really well. But I'm not sure that's what it means. <laughs> so here's my spanner in, in, the wheel, uh, in, in the wheel here, I'm afraid. Um, let's have a look at this a little bit more, more deeply. First of all, if we take that approach, there's no verse that says that. And, you know, you can, you can talk about the concept being elsewhere and what have you and... But it's not there. I, I, I've looked at the various references that the commentary's given. I'm not convinced that this is um, a quotation or even a reference to a particular part, part of Scripture. The other issue that happens is this, that the word jealousy has been very central in James's thinking here. That James has been talking about jealousy in a negative sense. Verse 14 of chapter 3. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart. Verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists. In other words, in this context, the jealousy is paralleled with selfish ambition. That this, this whole not being meek... Being proud, wanting things your way, is described by James as being a type of jealousy, right? I, wa- I don't want to have conflict with my wife today. She, she's, she's, she's making me feel a way I don't want to feel. She's not meeting my needs, she's not doing what I want. And so there's this, this jealousy that I want something, and I'm not getting it, therefore conflict. Selfish ambition. It's all viewed very negatively. Now you could say, well James is now making a contrast, but it does seem in the flow of the the context, in the flow of the passage, that jealousy is being used in this whole sense negatively. I know I said to you at the start that the word jealousy is a neutral word. That's why he said at the beginning, bitter jealousy. Because there is a jealousy that God has that is a good jealousy. I get that, I understand that. But it's broadly speaking being used in negative, in a negative sense in this context. The, the, the other thing I think that we need to note here is that, um, and, and the New American Standard translates it differently. He says, it says that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intently. So let's reword this a little bit and, I, and I'll try and show you how I, how I read this. So it's a question. Do you suppose? Do you suppose? And now let's leave out the scripture bit because we're going to come to that in a minute. Do you suppose that the spirit that he caused to live in us envies intently? In other words, if we understand this to mean our human spirit... And it's interesting that the word spirit is only used one other times in James. It's used in chapter 2 and verse 26. For as the, the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. That's referring to the human spirit. So the word spirit is being used by James to refer to the human spirit in context as well. So if we understand it this way, the question is this. Did God give you your spirit, your life... So that you would envy 
intently. That you would be a person that would live that way. Now, if that's the question, that fits far more perfectly into the context. Because that's the question that James is asking. He's saying, hey guys, you're quarreling. Why are you quarreling? It's that selfish ambition. It's that bitter jealousy. That's why you're quarreling. That's not how it should be. You're an enemy of God. And then he asked, did God make you? Did he give you life that you would live this way? What's the answer to that question? No, no, it's not. That's not how we're supposed to live. So my understanding of this passage, of this verse is the question of, did God intend for us to live this way? Because here's the reality, and I'll be really honest with you, I'm going to be vulnerable with you guys here, okay? James 4, verses 1 and following, has played a, has a huge impact in my life. And it's had a huge impact in my marriage. The fact that we're going to be able to celebrate, God willing... Got to be careful. I know what verses are coming up about not saying what you're going to do tomorrow. So I've got to, I've got to watch that. But if we make it to 25 years, the, it's only because of coming to understandings of verses like this. I know for most of you that you are Christians, that you love Jesus. And yet James 4 has shaken your cages. Because it's brutal. It's like, you know, it's like shining a spotlight on the pride in our hearts. You say, oh, I'm not proud. I'm a humble person, mostly. I mean, I'm not going to brag about it because I wouldn't be humble anymore. But I'm mostly humble, you know, and I've got a huge problem with pride. And then James says, so did you fight? You know, and, and suddenly, suddenly he's, he's drawing our attention to, to this in a very, very real way. And, and so I think that, that we as Christians are being shaken by James here to say, look, you can pretend, you can play at this, but here's the reality. How much do you love yourself? How much do you prioritize yourself? And in that context, he's saying, do you really think that God made you to live this way? Do you want to go on living this way? Is this how you're going to be for the rest of your Christian life? That your spirit is going to be a spirit that is envying and, and has selfish ambition, is looking out for itself rather than serving God, which you pretend to do. Are you going to keep on this way? Is this how it should be? That's James's question. Doesn't that fit well? So what's the scripture he's referring to? Is there no purpose to the scripture? What scripture? Well, I think that reference is verse 6. But he gives more grace. If we understand that linking phrase, but he gives more grace, then you'll see how the scripture that is in the Old Testament, that's quoted in verse 6 from Proverbs 3.34, that that is the scripture referenced in verse 5. And the bridge are these few words here. But he gives more grace. Here you are. You're a Christian. You love Christ. But James 4 has shone this spotlight on your pride. And you're recognizing and seeing more clearly than you perhaps ever have that you want to be comfortable. You want your life to go well. Don't want hardships, don't want trials, don't want difficulties. You'll come to church, give a bit of money, 
sing the songs, maybe even read your Bible every day. You do the Christian-y things, but you don't want to have all the trouble. And James has shone this light on your heart, and now he says to you, do you think God made you to live this way? Is this what your human spirit was intended for? And then he says, but he gives you grace. Don't know about you, but that's what I need to hear when I've just had that question asked of me. When I've had my sin exposed, when I've had my pride revealed, and I'm aware of my frailty, my brokenness, I'm aware of sin coursing through my veins, that though Christ has saved me, here I am still as long as I'm in this mortal body impacted by the sin that is in me. But God gives grace. God gives us grace. We so often think of grace as simply being forgiveness from sin. We think of grace as simply being, oh, we're supposed to be punished, but God gives us grace, so now we're not punished. Grace is so much more than that. Freedom from sin is so much more than that. When Christ died for our sin, he didn't simply die so that we would have a get out of jail free card to place in our back pocket for the day that we die. When he set us free from sin, he set us free from this struggle, from this fight, from this double-mindedness, from this wrestling within ourselves, from this, I want to follow Jesus, but i got to look after myself, battle that goes on within us. He sets us free from it. And if we are in a position right now where this, this pride in our hearts has been exposed, the message to us from James is this. There's grace. There's grace for you. I've told you guys this so many times before. Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is not speaking about you being saved, justified. He finished dealing with that four chapters earlier. The context leading up to chapter 8 is the context of the internal struggle that we have because we still live in sinful bodies though he's given us his Holy Spirit. And there's this struggle where we need to learn to walk not in the flesh but walk in the Spirit. And it's in that context that he says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The condemnation that has been removed in the context of chapter 8 verse 1, though there are other contexts elsewhere, but in that context... The condemnation that has been removed is the condemnation that, to put it in James-type language, is the condemnation to live as double-minded people. Is the condemnation to be bound to our bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Is the condemnation to not be people of peace. That's the condemnation that Christ has set us free from. That's the overcoming of the power of sin. Seen here and now. All that is to say that James is saying that there is a purpose to the scripture. Isn't there always? I could do a whole sermon on that, but I'll leave it for now. There's a purpose to the scripture because he hasn't 
given us life that we might be envying intently, yearning jealously. But rather, he gives us more grace. No matter how proud your heart is, there is sufficient grace. You know, we're comfortable with that, aren't we, in the context of justification? Are we not? You know, we'll say to people who are unbelievers, it doesn't matter how much you've sinned. It doesn't matter how great your sins are. God's grace and God's mercy is even greater. Amen? We all believe that, don't we? But can we apply it to ourselves in sanctification? Doesn't matter how proud your sinful heart is. Doesn't matter how much you've lived this way. Doesn't matter how long you struggled with this. There's even more grace. There's even more grace. That's what James is saying. Therefore it says, and I believe this is the scripture that's referenced to in verse 5. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We would normally turn to Proverbs 3 at this point, but I want to keep moving and I want to finish this section. And we're kind of a little short on time this morning. But suffice to say that you know that in the book of Proverbs, and particularly in chapter 3, the central theme is wisdom. It's wisdom. This is the context of Proverbs 3. And so when James is associating heavenly wisdom with being humble, he has an Old Testament foundation to be able to say that. I tell you guys this regularly, you know. 89, I used to, when I was first saved, I thought that, you know, 90% of the New Testament was new. And then as I kind of became more familiar with my Old Testament, I thought, well, maybe, maybe it's nearer 50-50. I'm, I'm now, I think last year I was, at, I was at the 80% level. I think I'm now at the 90% level. That really in the New Testament, the amount of new revelation is really minimal. That the, 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 the Bible uh, authors are, are just adding very thin layers of revelation one on another as you go through biblical history. And James is really, in, in essence, saying nothing new here at all. This has always been the case. That what we have here is a situation, and those of you who have been doing Isaiah with us in the evenings for the last two or three years, you're very familiar with this by now. And that is that if you're proud, God's going to bring you down. But if you're humble, he's going to lift you up. Simple as that. God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Do you understand now why James is not being hyperbolic in verse 4 when he says, if you're friends with the world, you're an enemy of God? Because what you're doing is you're reveling in your pride Your conflict is exposing your bitter jealousy and your selfish ambition. And we know, we know from scripture, from passage after passage after passage, and book after book after book, that God opposes the proud. And if you are somebody who is, who is in a, in a, in a state of conflict and quarrels because you're not getting your own way, then you are that person. You're that person. You know, this, this, I don't want to, I don't like quoting secular people, but I, I think it illustrates it well. But Jordan Peterson is very fond of saying something about Nazi Germany, where he says that, you know, most people think that if they were in, in Germany in the 1940s, that they would stand up and be opposed to the Nazis. And he says, statistically speaking, that is highly unlikely. 
It is almost a statistical certainty that if we had existed in Germany in the 1940s, that we would have been Nazis. That's just, that's just statistics. That's just, you know, unless we've all suddenly become better in a generation, and I would beg to differ on that point, um, then, then that's the reality of the situation, right? Now, I don't want to, you can make your own applications for modern society with regards to that, but I'll leave that for your own time. But from the purpose of the sermon, what I want to say is this. We read the Bible and we think that we're the good guys. You know? Yay, Team David. Boo, Goliath. You know? We, we think we're, we're always on the side of right, aren't we? James is not letting you get away with that, folks. He is not. You want to see the enemies of God in the Bible? You want to see the Nebuchadnezzars of the world? Oh, yeah, Nebuchadnezzar, bad guy. Boo, his, boo, his. You know, we don't like Nebuchadnezzar, put up a statue, worship that statue. That's not good, bad, bad, bad man. It's all pantomime villain stuff, you know. Why was Nebuchadnezzar a bad man? Because he was proud and God had to humble him. So who are you more like? Are you more like Nebuchadnezzar or are you more like Jesus? I'll wait. You need to ask yourself that question. We all need to ask ourselves that question. Because you get guys who are disciples like Peter. Oh, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Three times. You know? James and John. Hey, mum, can you ask, can you ask Jesus something for us? We're a bit embarrassed to ask, but can you ask? Seats, seats in the kingdom, you know? You see, we as Christians, we love to highlight overt, obvious sins that we don't struggle with. We love it. Because it makes us the good guys. You know? Oh, we're Christians. We don't like that kind of stuff. And we shouldn't like that kind of stuff. But why do we put it on such a pedestal? Because we don't struggle with it so we can condemn the bad people and make ourselves the good people. That is not Christianity. Might be American Christianity, but it's not biblical Christianity. The reality is, is that the bad guys are the proud. And we're the bad guys. And that's why we need a saviour. And now we have a saviour and we have been saved. But the struggle to overcome our pride is a struggle that will continue as long as we are in this body. And we must struggle. Because God opposes the proud. And therefore, by, by embracing our pride, by embracing our bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, we are making ourselves enemies of God. You see how it all fits together? And so... The answer then, verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Guys, this is so important. This is the point where we must, you know, let's end the, let's end the sermon at verse 6, shall we? Oh, it's going to be a miserable week, isn't it? There's a therefore that follows in verse 7. So let's see what it's there for. It is the solution. It's the solution to the problem, this scenario, the situation that James has painted. He's put this spotlight on us. He won't let us escape. We are confronted with our own pride and our own selfishness. And we're like, what are we going to do? James says, submit yourself to God. That's the answer. Submit yourself to God. He said, but I can't turn this around. And I hate it when I suffer in this way. And I don't like being treated that way. And it's just all so overwhelming. I don't know how I'm ever going to change. Submit yourself to God. Submit yourself to God. But, but I can't change this. And I think I'm always going to be like that. Can you submit yourself to God? Submit yourself to God. That's it. 
That is it. That is the starting point. That is the, that is the thing. And, and you, you don't want to be thinking too far ahead. You're just going to start. Okay, this moment, this moment, can I bow the knee just like I bowed the knee the first time I trusted in him? And can I submit to God? That's the response. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Oh, brilliant. Well, that's great. I can do that. Are we done here now? No. No, then we have to resist. We have to resist the devil. And he will flee from you. We have to be encouraged by this, friends. We have to be encouraged by this. Yet on the one hand, yeah, we submit, and that's not the end of it. There is, there is, there is warfare, and we have to constantly resist. But when we do resist, he flees from us. He flees from us. And I hope, I hope, I pray to God that all of us who are Christians have had the experience of being overwhelmed by a sin in the past that we're no longer overwhelmed by. Why? Because we resisted. We resisted. And it's a struggle, you know? You, you know, you, you don't take a skinny guy to the gym and he doesn't become Arnold Schwarzenegger in two minutes. You know, there's, there's resistance that has to happen. But if you do what you're supposed to do in the spiritual realm with spiritual disciplines and you resist the enemy, then he will flee from you. And look at the context here. It's not just talking about overt sort of temptations to sexual immorality and overt temptations to other bad habit patterns, though they are included as well. This is in the context of pride. This is in the context of just not desiring the things that we desire to the extent that it impacts our lives and the lives of those around us. That's the issue that he's dealing with here. Our selfish ambition. How do we deal with our selfish ambition? Submit to God and resist Satan. And why do so many of us still struggle with this? Because we've never really submitted and resisted. Because we've never really had it pointed out to us how gross and offensive this sin is before God. In fact, many churches, it's kind of a, it's encouraged, you know. Well, you've got to love others as you love yourself, and you can't do that unless you love yourself. You know. There are churches this Sunday, quite likely in this country, that will be preaching sermons about keeping toxic people out of your lives. Another sort of Oprah Winfrey chicken soup for the soul fortune cookie kind of rubbish. The reality is, is that we as Christians have got to be prepared to be treated badly. And if we don't, then we're an enemy of God. And so we have to submit before God, be willing to go to the cross with him, and we need to resist the enemy in this way, that when we are tempted to think that we deserve better, then we have to repent and resist and say, no, I'm following Jesus. And going to Calvary. That's what's happening. Resist him in this issue. And draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's even more encouraging, isn't it? 
And not only when we resist Satan will he flee, but then when we seek after God, when we seek to live the right way, that he will help us, he will be there for us, he will draw near to us in that sense. Is that not just what James said earlier when he said, if you ask, if you lack wisdom and you ask for it, he will give it to you? If you want to live the right way, if you want to be sold out for God, you just ask because he's going to give that to you. He's going to enable you to do that. But don't ask if you're double-minded. How do I know that James is thinking about that same concept and that same passage? Well, that might just be the next verse. We'll get there in a minute. Oh, uh, sorry, the latter part of this verse. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Literally double-souled repetition of this term that only James uses that he used back in chapter 1. So... Draw near to God, draw near, and he will draw near to you. So cleanse your hands, there's repentance, you sinners. Doesn't mince his words, does he? Good old James. You sinners. You've got to repent. And, and come to him and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, he's not saying you have to do the purification and then you can come to God. Don't interpret it that way. What it's saying is this. Let's just sum this whole package up. What he's saying is this, is that we are selfish and proud, and we see that in the way that we, we, we deal with trials, we see that with the conflict in our lives, we see that we are wanting things and not getting them, and that's problematic. It needs to not be problematic, because it's not about us, it's about Christ. If we're sold out for him, then we're not the centre of the universe anymore. And we're going to have to repent of that. We're going to have to clean our hands and wash up. And when the enemy says, oh, but you shouldn't be treated this way. Oh, but that's not fair that they do that to you. If you allow that person to do it, they'll just keep on doing it. You'll be like a doormat and blah, blah, blah. And all of these things. And we resist the devil. And then at the same time, we draw near to God who has abundant grace for us in this struggle and for whom is said that there is now no condemnation for us to walk through this struggle. And we draw near to him. But the act of drawing near is an act of repentance where we say, man, look at the pride in my heart. I'm such a sinner still. God, give me strength on this battle. Help me walk through this battle. And what will happen as we do that is that God will help us. And James is saying to us, if you're double-minded, you've got to get right with God. I'm going to get out on a limb here. I think most Christians, most of us, we fail miserably in this area. And I think that the reason that we fail miserably <clears throat> is not because we fought the fight and lost. It's because we've never been told to fight this fight. I mean, if you're a guy and you've been told to resist sexual temptation, you've been told a million times in a million sermons. You know, and if you've got male pastors, which you should have, I mean, they've probably been told wives a million times that you're supposed to submit, you know. I mean, there's certain things you don't need that you know, need to, know that you need to do because you've been told a million times. But I think what James is doing here is he's pointing at something that is underneath it all, that underlies all other sin. He's saying, are you still proud? That's the battle that has to be fought. That's the one that you have to resist. That's the one you have to cry out to God for help for. Because it's just so insipid. And it just attaches itself. And every other sin that we, we commit has this as its root. Right here. And so, I don't know about you, I've got to the point with James 
where every time I'm, te- every time I'm teaching, every time I'm reading it in preparation, I'm like double-minded. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, I'm just like, man, this is just burning. I hope you guys are burning as much as I am as we go through James. But you know, when he says purify your hearts, you double-minded, I'm like, okay, okay, I, I hear, I hear. I know he's speaking to me. My wife certainly knows he's speaking to me. So, and so, as we come to the end of this section, and I think that to verse 8, that really sums, hopefully I've summed up pretty well the whole gist of this whole section. When we come to verse 9 and 10, he then says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That's quite a verse, isn't it? I mean, you know, there are Christians, I mean, I know Christians who will say, well, if you're, if you're walking with the Lord, you should never be depressed. My goodness, you should have joy. Be joyful always, rejoice, rejoice always, you know. Well, deal with this verse, folks. Here's a verse and a half. Listen, there, there are churches that deliberately avoid difficult, controversial topics because they don't want to upset people. That's why we teach verse by verse. We don't get to avoid stuff that we don't want to teach or to skim over it. (laughs) I think that by choosing the book of James, we kind of really put ourselves in the crosshairs. But there we go. But, But the reality is this. If we're the sort of person who wants a sermon to encourage us, to lift us up, to make us go, oh, yes, that's just so wonderful. I feel so much better. Hallelujah. You know, I want to go and do this. I want to go and sing the praises of Jesus as I, as I walk out of the church today. If that's what you want every sermon, you are never going to mature. There'll be those sermons. I mean, there's so much to be thankful for and we should be rejoicing constantly. But you've got to understand that as much as there is rejoicing in the Christian life, there needs to be weeping and mourning. As much as there is happiness, there needs to be sadness. And again, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying it repeatedly at this point, but again, we see again and again and again how James is quoting Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, or at least alluding to it, just again and again and again. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You want comfort? You want peace? You want to be a friend of God? When you see your own pride, you have to weep you have to mourn and you have to hate it. You know why we're double-minded? Because we don't mind it. We don't mind it. It's okay. We'll be double-minded. It's no big deal. You know, I mean, I go to church every Sunday and I read my Bible every day and I, and I pray for people and I do good deeds and I love Jesus. And man, that, that worship CD has been on repeat in the car for a year. You know? I'm, you know, we're doing all right. We don't hate our pride. Listen, what, we're, what this passage, and I, and I know it's not upon me, and I feel the burden too much, and I know I mustn't. I, my job is just to present the text, teach it accurately, equip it, and then leave it to the Holy Spirit. But I, I really hope that this last two or three weeks, you know, coming out of chapter three and chapter four and up to this, I'm really hoping that the, the text is doing its work and that we are at the point now where we hear verse 9 and we go, yeah, I get it. I get it. I need to mourn. I need to weep. I need to lament. My heart is in such a terrible state still. 
I covered it up. I pretended it wasn't so. I hope that verse 9 isn't problematic to us in the context that we've been seeing. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. What a lovely summary, huh? That's Jesus, Philippians 2. He humbled himself, taking on the form of man, humbled himself even to death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him. One of the most overlooked parts of our our Christology, our understanding of Christ, is that through the what theologians call the kenosis, the emptying, the humiliation of Christ, he ends up being super exalted. In other words, Christ was just as perfect, just as holy, and just as much fully God in eternity past as he will be in eternity future. But he will be more highly exalted because of his humiliation. Do we understand that? That's pretty radical stuff. That Jesus is going to receive greater glory and greater exaltation. Why? Because although he was perfect, and although his attributes have not changed at all, through the cross, he is glorified, and we see his glory more than anything else in human history. Right? Like, like Moses saw the glory of God, and God revealed himself before Moses and passed by, and he said, I'm Yahweh, I'm Yahweh, I'm Yahweh. And he talks about his, his love, this covenant-keeping love and faithfulness. And Moses knew. But we know better. That's what, that's what the prologue of John's gospel is all about. Grace in place of grace. Moses saw, and they have Moses, now we have Jesus. And he knew who Christ was, but we know even more. And then in all of John's gospel, the, the glorifying of Christ is the cross. The glorifying of Christ is the revelation of his character. And so Christ hasn't changed, but through what he does in his humiliation... He is even more greatly glorified for eternity. Isn't that a glorious truth? And what are we, Christians, if not people following Jesus? Do we want to have that cup taken from us? Or do we want to follow in his footsteps and to see God exalt us one day? I feel like I'm getting old striking me more and more every year that goes by. Some of you are looking at me thinking, oh, you have no idea yet. But that's fine. But life goes, doesn't it? One of the crazy, our, our, our youngest is now an adult, driving around and stuff. And it's bizarre because I remember being that age like it was yesterday. And it's just this constant reminder that life is just, just gone. It's, it's just, it just goes. The years just tick by and life goes. Build something for eternity. Humble yourself that God might exalt you for all eternity. We're proud, double-minded enemies of God even now so often. 
Let's humble ourselves that we might accomplish great things for his glory in the time that we have. Amen. Thank you.